0: You know, we lit the candle of joy, but many of us, if we're really being honest, would say, that's great, but this is not the season that I'm in. In fact, um, two of the greatest forces in the world are shame and fear. And the more I talk with people, the more I realize how much shame dominates their lives and how it imprisons, it holds them captive, holds them in a prison of themselves, And so recently I've been thinking about a great deal about this word disgrace. What do we do with our disgrace even in the midst of trying to find joy? Like the candle we just lit. thinking about disgrace, you know, if we think about it as both a noun and a verb, right? So to experience disgrace is this loss of some sort of reputation or respect because of some sort of dishonorable action that happened either to us or we've done it to someone else. Or... If you disgrace someone or something, you're bringing some sort of shame or discredit upon a topic, an area, a person. The Swiss psychologist Carl Jung said that shame and disgrace is when soul eats emotion. Look at those times where soul is eating away at emotion. And many of us uh, feel disgraced, and the holidays do nothing more than accentuate that disgrace that you may be feeling. And I was thinking about uh, people within our congregation, just over the last you know, six to twelve months, and some of the some of the stories of us here in this faith community. Some of you have experienced a divorce or going through one. You've experienced infertility or a miscarriage or that abortion that nobody knows about, including your spouse. A difficult breakup with that person that you believed would be your future spouse or your spouse has hurt you a great deal, a betrayal, an affair, you're still reeling after all of these months, a family member who's in jail, maybe you've been fired from a job or laid off, and no matter what you do, you cannot land another one. Your children have disgraced you, hurt you, betrayed you, disowned you. Or maybe you were told as a child, you're not good for anything. You are worthless and you will never measure up. And it's taken you years to try to peel that baggage off. An addiction that's been exposed or an addiction you've had for years and you just can't shake it off. Or you've been sexually abused or sexually assaulted or sexually shunned. And so you've put on the mask to hide this disgrace. And even in the mask wearing, maybe you're exhausted and it feels duplicitous and it feels hypocritical. Now, these are not theoretical issues. These are real issues in our community. So what do we do in the midst of lighting a candle about joy but feeling disgrace? Throughout the history of the world, God seems to have a soft spot in His heart for disgrace and for the disgraced. In fact, the Bible talks about disgrace over 85 different times. This is not a common, uh, an uncommon theme in our Bible. Even more, God's story is full of disgraced people and disgraceful people That he rescues and then he actually says, I want you a part of my plan. Think of just a few. Moses' anger was so great, he couldn't control his anger. He needed anger management classes, but he didn't get to those classes and it led him to actually murder someone. Thought he could hide the person in the sand. No one would see it. No one would notice until he was exposed and realized someone saw it. Sarcastically made a comment to him about it. So you're going to do that again? And he ran away in his disgrace. Elijah, the great prophet in 1 Kings, he was so depleted in the midst of his ministry feeling disgraced and what am I doing, so upset that he told God uh, he had suicidal ideations, he didn't think his life was worth living any further. Jeremiah felt so disgraced by unfruitful ministry that he blamed God and told God that he he thought God was a liar. And the psalmist prays continually, Over and over and over again, we hear the psalmist saying things like, do not let me be disgraced. Let my enemies be disgraced, but do not let me be disgraced, God. But did you ever notice, not just in the Old Testament, did you ever notice how much disgrace is a part of Jesus' story? I was shocked the last few weeks as I've been thinking about this and tried to piece it all together. Think about Mary and the disgraceful situation that she's in. Let's take off the the rosy... Christmas glasses of sentimentality that we wear this time of year. Let's really feel the disgrace of this situation. Engaged to Joseph, she finds out she's pregnant. How much fear and trembling does that cause for a teenager who finds out she's pregnant in that culture? I was on a trip out of state uh, not too long ago and I bumped into someone who used to be a part of Renew. And she's since moved out of the area after graduation. And I hadn't heard from her in a long time, so it was great to see her and grab a few minutes with her um, at an event we were at. And I saw her and I just said, hey, how are you doing? And she said, well, uh, I'm still single. And she looked at her belly and rubbed her belly and said, "Um, but I'm going to be a mother. And she looked back up at me and quickly averted her eyes and looked back at the floor. And I can still see in my mind the look on her face. And she tried to smile, and her smile was the best effort she could give to try to cover her shame and try to keep from cracking and falling apart in front of a group of other people that she knew. And I realized in that moment, that precious moment, that I, the best thing that I could say in that moment was not to say anything at all. And I just tried to hug her and hold her tight, in a way that Jesus would in that situation. And as I hugged her and held her, I wondered if this might be what Mary felt. But even more so in that culture. How do I tell Joseph? He'll never understand me. He'll never believe me. How will I tell my parents? They'll kill me or maybe at best disown me. Where can I run away for nine months or longer? (laughs) She knew the disgrace that she would experience from the culture. In fact, in Matthew 1, there's an important detail that we haven't seen, maybe haven't seen before. Because it says this because Joseph, her husband, again, sort of fiance on steroids in that first century culture, husband without benefits, you might say, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Do you realize that the most gracious thing that Joseph could have possibly done in that situation, what he planned on doing, was to make sure Mary wasn't disgraced even more by divorcing her quietly. It was the most gracious thing that he could have ever done. You know what he's doing? He's trying to take the disgrace off of her and onto himself to divorce her quietly. He would have tried to protect Mary but he would have lost face himself. Had that plan not worked out, Joseph may never have had the opportunity to remarry because of the family shame he would have brought. He never would have been able to remarry the rest of his life if people found out about the Mary situation. Was Jesus ever teased by bullies on the school playground being called a bastard child? So there's Mary in her disgraceful situation. But think... Concurrently, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. What's going on with Zechariah and Elizabeth here? Luke 1 tells us that another pregnancy was going on. In addition to Mary, it was her cousin Elizabeth, right? John the Baptist's birth story contains disgrace. Zechariah, this bigwig religious guy who served as a priest in the temple on behalf of uh, mediating between God and people and making sacrifices. and He had the special honor of going into God's presence Something few get that opportunity to do. And here's this bigwig with these special God opportunities that he gets to be a part of, and he and Elizabeth struggle with infertility. A son was your honor, and in those days, infertility and the inability to have children was considered a curse from God. So, how does a priest who's trying to connect with God also experience God's curse? This was quite confusing for Zechariah, I'm sure. Deep cultural and religious disgrace. So one woman experiences disgrace because of her surprising unwanted pregnancy. Another woman experiences disgrace because no matter what, she can't get pregnant. An angel meets Zechariah and tells him that despite his old age, his wife Elizabeth would be pregnant and would give, give birth to a son and they would call him John, not a family name. And Zechariah doubts it, and he talks back to the angel. And the angel says, you've just lost the privilege to speak through the rest of the pregnancy. A disgraceful priest. How do you do your duties as a priest without your mouth? And then Elizabeth finds out she's pregnant, and she says this in Luke 1. The Lord has done this for me. In these days He has shown me His favor and taken away my disgrace among the people." Jesus' birth story, you see in the D word show up here. There's a pattern. Elizabeth is no longer barren. She no longer needs to suffer under the cultural scoffing of infertility. John is born in the midst of a context that had experienced disgrace. And John would go on to pave the way. Say, it's not about me, it's about someone else. Back up even further before Mary and Joseph and before Elizabeth and Zechariah, back into Jesus' family tree. Jesus' family tree is pretty disgraced too. Story of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth, chapter 1 and 2. It tells us that Naomi, this widow, disgraceful, rejected, stuck in a culture with no way of moving upward when you were a widow. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, no husband. Through a series of miraculous events, Ruth ends up meeting Boaz, this distant relative, and ends up marrying her and then giving her a future. They end up having a baby. By the way, do you remember who Boaz's mother was? Rahab. Do you guys remember what Rahab's profession was? Prostitution. Matthew 1.5 tells us that Jesus' family tree includes a whore. Ruth and Boaz have a son. They name him Obed. Can you imagine Obed growing up and asking Grandma, Mimi, what's your job? And Obed grows up and becomes the grandfather of who? King David. King David's got a whore in his background too. And it was prophesied that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And what's interesting is that Rahab, despite her prostitution role, she's actually elected into the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. actually trusting God in her town of Jericho. What's up with that? How about Jesus' family? What Jesus is born into? There's a detail in Luke chapter 2 that says that Mary and Joseph went to the temple to dedicate their newborn son like any good Jew would do. So the eighth day, you take your son or your daughter, you take them to the temple and you make a sacrifice as was said as was commanded in Leviticus. Now if you notice in your Bible, there's a little footnote there in Luke chapter 2 when it says they took a sacrifice of a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Anybody see a footnote there? Luke chapter 2, it says Leviticus 12.8. Like good Jews, they were just following the custom. Now I know you've memorized Luke tw- or, uh, Leviticus 12.8, but let me just say it for you, just so you have it. It says, these are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. But, if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. What does it tell us about Jesus' family? They're below the poverty line. Jesus' family can't afford a lamb, and so in God's mercy in Leviticus 12, He says... I will actually, you still need to bring a sacrifice, but on of a sliding scale based on your socioeconomic level. And because you're poor, you can bring birds. Jesus is born into a poor family, cultural disgrace. How about Jesus' birth, right? The disgraceful location, the manger. Now, we, we have this nice nativity scene, right? The wooden thing. Um, hate to burst anybody's bubble, but they're very. Uh, archaeologists have found this many above ground wooden structures in all of their studies. There's just not a lot of wood in the desert, it's a lot of stone. And so, what they think is actually the, the nativity scene that we have would have been a cave, it would have built uh, on the pockmarked these little caves pockmarking all the areas around the hillside of Bethlehem. So they would build a house of stone above it and the inn, their house, would be above and they would put the animals down in the cave underneath, kind of like a a basement. And I've spent time in some of those caves around Bethlehem when I've lived and studied there. And I'll say this, it's not clean. The caves that I went to around Bethlehem, which may or may not, we don't know for sure, but I would imagine would have smelled similar. Smelled of mold and smoke from torches. When people needed light in there, on the, on the roof there'd be ash, urine from sheep, and feces from cows. Now, I'm not a mother and I've never, never given birth, but I think we can all admit that we might call that a little less than ideal for delivery how about the shepherds the first ones to tell the world about Jesus's arrival held a disgraceful position we, we put a towel around kids heads you know a bath towel with the, their dad's belt and they look all cute but that isn't how shepherds were seen in the first century shepherds were seen as dirty they're around animals all day they're wandering vagrants They didn't have a home. They slept out wherever their animals were grazing. They were sleazy and deceitful and untrustworthy. Many shepherds were thieves. They were irreligious since they were with their sheep all the time. They could never go and worship at synagogue. So they were seen as incredibly irreligious. Anybody that God could have used to announce the good good news, he uses the equivalent of pawn shop owners to be the first to broadcast the news of God's cosmic rescue plan set into motion. The angels visit the shepherds. They freak out. They get over their fear. They get excited. They scurry off and find the baby and then spread the news and needless to say, it went viral. But not just His birth. Think about Jesus' life and this disgrace that we see. Rejected by those in His own town. Several plots to kill Him, not by irreligious people, but by the religious leaders of the day rejected by the people he loved and came to save, arrested, beaten, spit upon, mocked with a crown of thorns, betrayed by one of his closely earthly friends, especially Peter, who swore in his life he never knew the man, not once, not twice, but three times. Hung naked in public to die, Have you ever been naked in public? Actually, don't answer that. I'm just going to assume no. But have you ever been naked in public, bloody, beaten, and in the process of dying? That is disgrace. So here's a question I've been wrestling with all week. Why would God's cosmic rescue plan travel along the path of deep disgrace? A disgraceful family, disgraceful lineage, disgraceful pregnancy, disgraceful socioeconomic state, telling the news through disgraceful people in a disgraceful profession, born in a disgraceful location, in a disgraceful way, who felt disgrace from people throughout his entire life. Jesus knew disgrace. And while two of the most powerful forces in the world are shame and fear, fortunately, There are two more powerful forces in the world than those. And it's love and it's hope. So who are the people who rushed towards Jesus and wanted to spend time with Him the most? The most disgraceful of people! The prostitutes, the woman who had five husbands, the demon-possessed man, the widow subject to years-long chronic vaginal bleeding, the poor, the desperate parents with ill children, the crippled, those with leprosy who were physically deformed and cut off, those who were relationally and culturally deformed and cut off, the poor, those who knew they were so deep in their sin they were desperate because they did not know what to do. So why did they flock to Jesus? because they were convinced that Jesus loved them like they had never been loved before that he understood them in their disgrace because that's his story and that he offered hope that they didn't even know it was possible why did disgraceful people come to him i don't want to overcomplicate this because they so desperately longed to be regraced go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. The Garden of Eden. Sin enters the world, right? Adam and Eve are told that if they eat from the fruit of the tree that there would be consequences. And they did. And there were consequences that we feel even to this day. They rebelled and everything changed. And Adam and Eve saw that they were naked and then they felt disgrace and then they tried to hide and run away. They felt disgraceful. This Advent, uh, our family's been reading through Ann Voskamp's uh, family devotionals. beautiful artwork and great writing that's age-appropriate. And uh, I think it's called Unwrapping the Greatest Gift. And we're doing it each night before bed and uh, with the kids. And it starts all the way back to Genesis and works all the way up to Jesus. And it's been great. On day three, so December 3rd, it said this, Anne Voskamp in um, this book, she wrote this. In the midst of Adam and Eve's disgrace, God comes with one question, not the question of, why did you do that? Not the question, what did you do wrong? The very first God question of the Old Testament and of the whole Bible is a love question out of God's heart Where are you? Where are you? God knows something about human beings. And what they feel regularly, this idea of disgrace. God, who repeatedly says that He's close to the brokenhearted, relates to us because His heart has been broken before, too. Jesus looks at us and He says, Me too. I felt it too. I know that disgrace. That isn't theoretical, I know it. That's my story too. So, if the first question of the Old Testament is, Where are you? Do you know what the first question of the New Testament is? Where is he? Where is he? The Magi go to Herod and say, We've seen this star. Where's this king of the Jews? Where is this guy? Wise men and women still look for him, the one who can handle our disgraceful state and offer us love and hope in the midst of heartbreak and shame and our deep spiritual disappointment. Where is he? And those wise people look for him because God, who is wise and loving, never stops looking for us. A few years ago, I came across a painting that I want to show you look at this painting here it's called The Virgin Mary Consoles Eve by Sister Grace Remington from Iowa what do you see here? Hmm. sorry looking down Huh. huh, Fulfillment of Prophecy. Yeah. Mary's foot is crushing the snake. Good. Whereas at Eve is caught up in Yeah. Did you guys see the feet? It's so cool. Mary crushing the snake's head while the tail's still hold of Eve. What else do you see? good question I, I this week when I saw that I assumed saying like the hope is here but sin and brokenness are still very evident in our world she's also still clutching into her chest yeah it's interesting she still has the apple Huh? There's hope coming. Behind them is the light. Behind them is the light, yeah. So the artist of this also wrote a poem that I think is just as beautiful. And it's called, O Eve. It's Mary speaking to Eve, and it's this. O Eve, my mother, my daughter, life-giving Eve, do not be ashamed and do not grieve. The former things have passed away. Our God has brought us to a new day. See, I'm with child through whom all will be reconciled. O Eve, my sister, my friend, we will rejoice together forever, life without end. You know, when it comes to our disgrace, here's what we must do. We must deal with our disgrace because if we don't, we'll always be imprisoned to our disgrace. But here's the bad news. You can't do it. You can't. You can't deal with your own disgrace. No amount of counseling or pop psychology books or friends or positive thinking will handle and take away all your disgrace. But the good news is is there's one who can, one who did, one who will Who knew your disgrace? Because he he felt disgrace too. And took our disgrace upon himself in his death on the cross. And only now can we change by doing one and one one thing only. And it's shoving aside our self sufficiency and entering into faith that says, all right, you've got to do this for me because I can't get myself out of this hole on my own. Placing our faith in this disgrace-bearing man, Jesus Christ. I've read this before because I think it's so moving, this idea of Dallas Willard and his idea of grace. I want us to feel the scandalous element of grace. Because grace sounds great when it's theoretical. But when you get specific with grace, that's when it feels scandalous. So I want you to think about that image as we think about disgrace. I want you to think about your story and where there's great, uh, disgrace and shame in your life, in your past, maybe your present. The flunk-outs and the dropped-outs and the burned-outs. The broke and the broken. The drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and herpes ridden, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren, the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents not dying yet in the rest home, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid the emotionally starved or emotionally dead, and on and on and on. Jesus offers to all such people as these the present blessedness of the present kingdom regardless of circumstances. Even the murderers and child molesters, the brutal and the bigoted, the drug lords and the pornographers, the war criminals and the sadists, the terrorists, the perverted and the filthy and the filthy rich. Can't we feel some sympathy for Jesus' contemporaries who huffed at Him? This man is cordial to sinners and even eats with them. Sometimes I feel I don't even want the kingdom to be open to such people. But it is. That is the heart of God. And if I, as a recovering sinner myself, can accept Jesus' good news, I can go to the mass murderer and say, you can be blessed in the kingdom of the heavens. There's forgiveness that knows no limits to the pederast and the perpetrator of incest, to the worshiper of Satan, to those who rob the aged and the weak, to the cheat and the liar and the bloodsucker and the vengeful, blessed, 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 as they flee into the arms of the kingdom among us. Grace comes to the disgraced. And we as people, a part of a church, need to get specific about that disgrace. Disgrace. Because if we just keep it generic, grace feels generic. But if we get specific with our disgrace and our brokenness and our sin and our limitation, then grace feels all the more specific in our lives. And that's why we celebrate Advent. That's the hope. That's the joy. That's why we can light a third candle this morning because that's what we celebrate. So we wait for the arrival of someone who can rescue us from our disgraceful state. That's why we celebrate. You know, I think it's significant. I thought of this this week. I think it's significant that Renew this month has chosen to partner during Advent with our Advent giving with the well and worthwhile Wear. Why? Because there have been women who have been caught in the human trafficking industry who I would only imagine feel some sort of disgrace. So when we take our disgrace to Jesus and He rescues us not in our own self sufficiency, He's the one that rescues us from that. We then join with God to say, God, how do we be not pipes, but or not buckets, but pipes, extending that to other people like those at the well and worthwhile wear? Advent is for the disgraced. Because Jesus came to re grace disgraced people, which is available to us not just generally, not just this month, but even today, right now. Now, I think in something as significant as this topic, and even looking around the room and seeing some of you moved emotionally this morning. We want to allow just a space and a time. We've got some people available to pray up here. And we want to invite those people who are available to pray to just come up and make themselves available. And we just want to give you the opportunity to say, you know what? There's disgrace that's holding me back. And right now, I just need someone to pray for me. And it can be as specific or as general as you want to be. It's all confidential. But we just want to allow space for that. So we're going to put some music on. If you just want to sit there and you want to just close your eyes and reflect and think about this or thank God or, or address it, uh, your disgrace right where you're at, that's fine. But we also know there may be people that actually say, I need this now. So we're going to do that before intermission. So we just want to allow time of reflection. And again, if you're helping pray, we want you just come up front right now. And if you want prayer, we want to encourage you to come up front right now. And we would love to pray for you in the midst of your disgrace. God, thank you that you make us new. We don't deserve to be made new. We are Eves who've had the snake wrapped around our legs. Many of us feel like the snake is still wrapped around our legs, and yet we reach out in desperation with a little sliver of hope of wondering, this hand on this woman's belly is this the hope of the world, and it is... And we need You to rescue us from our disgrace. And the world so, ne- so desperately needs some hope and some love in a world that's dominated by shame and fear. May we be people that in faith are able to push aside our self-sufficiency and say, I need something greater in my life than shame and fear. And I want to trust that this idea of hope and love through Jesus is for me. And it is. And that's what we thank God for. That's what we praise You for, God, in this season of Advent. And we're grateful for that. And it's with that hope and that love in the name of the One who provides those that we say thank You. Amen.